me tell you, buddy, there's a faster gun coming over yonder when the morning comes. Let me tell you, buddy, and it won't be long till you find yourself singing your last cowboy song. yippee ki when the roundup ends. Yippee-ki-yay, and the campfire dims. Yippee-ki-yay, he shouts and he sings. When a cowboy trades his spurs for wings. I hope you can hear me. I don't have my microphone today. It's just temporary, but I'm seeing if I can be heard over the laptop mic. I know it's not going to sound perfect, but... It's all I can have right now. Can anyone hear me? Can anybody hear me? Can you hear me talking? All right, there we go. Anybody hear me? Oh, great. All right, got to get through this one quick. This is going to be a shorty today. Uh, trying to, as people who know, I got married this weekend, and as a result, been very busy, so I'm just trying to sneak this in because I want to get this done so we can do. Because uh, I'm not going to be able to do one for a bit here because I got. I'm going on tour. We're going on tour, so I don't think there's going to be one Friday. It's going to be next week, so I want to. I want to get this over with. So it might. It's probably going to be short, but that's okay because the, the, the this chapter is pretty concise and to the point. So uh, this is. So we talked in the last chapter about how America's competing elites went from having sort of a basically unified. Uh, uh, goal around like a, a understanding of the American economy to a uh, economy dominated by individual uh, elite structures that are so that have access to so much uh, power through their money are able to essentially uh, create parallel structures to dominate the state independently. It can no longer uh, generate. Uh, a unified national effort. And so they begin to stagnate. And uh, in the next chapter, uh, Lashman points to, and we're talking about this book, people who are always asking about the book, it's always asking about the book, but that's fine. Uh, First Class Passengers on a Sinking Ship by Richard Lashman. Uh, and this chapter is called the, Ameri the American Military Without Rival and Without Victory which I think is a pretty great uh, name. And this chapter is about how the United States military has, even though it's the largest in the world and it has more military dominance relative to its other powers that it is a rival to than any hegemon before. There's been never been an empire with our degree of a military edge over any other country that might rival us or any, any number of other rivals. Problem is, as this chapter points out, the reality of a military in conditions of, you know, a capitalist, the headquarters of a capitalist world hegemony uh, is one that should be able to do the sort of insurgent brush fire warfare that is basically the only alternative to great power uh, nuclear exchange in the post-nuclear era. But the actual U.S. military is incapable of actually addressing that reality. Uh, and he starts by pointing out that uh, the U.S. 
which had a military state explode into being with World War II. It's like World War II is the big bang of the U.S. military state. The U.S. had a relatively small, underpowered and underfunded military relative to other world powers up until World War II. And it was that necessity, that moment of necessity that creates this new massive military power. And now the U.S. military obviously is more powerful than ever. Uh, it is actually cheaper than it's ever been in terms of a percentage of GDP. Military spending has gone down ever since the height of World War II. But in that process, it still created this incredibly powerful, independent uh, power node within the, the, the greater American state, which is the U.S. military, as an independent influence and interest with its own elites within it. Even though they are not capitalists, but they have access through their uh, uh, powers within the uh, bureaucratic state to a great deal of capital. Which means that they have an influence on the direction the capital flows. And Lachman uh, uses it as an example for this, the Vietnam War, where no matter how you argue, whenever you want to argue went wrong with the Vietnam War, the one thing you cannot argue is that at every point the generals, by and large, got uh, what they wanted, regardless of whether... They didn't get as many troops as they wanted, of course, but they got uh, escalation. They've got commitment to this project, but they were incapable of actually effectively engaging in the war that they would have needed to fight to win because the U.S. military is made up of these fiefdoms, Separate for, uh, institutions, which have their own bureaucratic structures, their own system of career paths. And those career paths are dependent, what? On access relationship of a given bureaucrat within the U.S. military state to a given weapons system. It's not around specific tasks. It's around the uh, things that the U.S. military builds to fight with. And those things are the most profitable things that can be built because that is the interest of U.S. capital. If they're going to spend, pay money for a military, there's going to be a military that pays them back. And the thing that pays them back is big-ticket, high-profit military hardware. It is not grunts. It is not training. It is not anything else. And that means the military is made up of people who were working within it towards the goal of U.S. military domination, but who cannot fight a war that must be fought to maintain military, uh, U.S. military domination. Now, uh, there is kind of a thread running through this chapter of Lachman sort of accepting the premise that if the U.S. had effectively done a counterinsurgency struck, uh, uh, war in Afghanistan or Iraq, that it would have gone differently, or Vietnam for that matter. It's actually beside the point if that's true or not. The fact is, is that the U.S. military, as it had been constructed, especially after the contractization of the neoliberal era, where uh, the entire, where all the money is going to these big industries or big uh, uh, profit-centered uh, technologies, but then profit still is seeking, there's still the demand for more profit centers. And so, a big chunk of the military gets hollowed out and privatized so that there could be more profit distributed, which means the actual military loses its abil ability to actually uh, fucking cohere, to, to do anything. 
before I go further, though, I want to read what I think is one of the bitchiest, uh, uh, one of the bitchiest footnotes, or uh, yeah, footnotes I've ever read in a academic uh, pseudo or you know popular academic text. Because Latchman was a sociologist, um, he's talking about how one of the things that makes the the army in charge and wag the dog is that. You know, the, tr the troops are in the field. Politicians feel powerless to really go against the military brass. The only real exception to that is MacArthur. And that is only because um, he was going to the point of nuclear war where capital is not, that's not good for business. So they pulled, they were willing to like let him go out and, and sort of, they were willing to neutralize him. But for the rest of the time, more war, Winning the war doesn't matter. As long as it's not an existential threat like nuclear war would have been, winning the war is beside the point. Making money is what matters. But anyway, so he's talking about how for a long time you needed to be a veteran in order to really be a serious candidate for presidency. And he says here, um, of course, most senators and, and indeed most veterans did not. Ex he's talking about how uh, for a long time after World War II, you basically had to be a veteran if you seriously wanted to compete for national politics. And the majority of co of uh, people in Congress and the Senate were veterans, and that that over time that has changed. Now, the almost no, uh, uh, almost no, there there are far fewer veterans now than there used to be in uh, the in Congress. But he says, uh, of course, most of those senators and indeed most veterans did not experience combat. Since in any military, a large majority of soldiers are support personnel. Nevertheless, military experience at least gives veterans the prestige to comment on and challenge, or more often to uncritically support, military commanders' claims, even if that service consisted of making propaganda films in Hollywood and later falsely claiming he helped liberate Auschwitz, Ronald Reagan, taking a single flight as an observer for which he was awarded the Army Silver Star Medal by General Douglas MacArthur, Lyndon Johnson, claiming his nickname was Tail Gunner Joe and that he had been wounded in battle even though he never flew a combat mission and was injured in an onboard party crossing the equator, Joseph McCarthy, or supervising the loading and unloading of cargo planes while spending most of his time playing poker and winning enough to finance his first congressional campaign, Richard Nixon. Conversely, George McGovern, who flew 35 missions on a, as a bomber pilot during World War II and received the Distinguished Flying Cross at, and the Air Medal for genuinely heroic actions, rarely mentioned his military record in public. McGovern was the rare presidential candidate who was successful in combat. In contrast to John F. Kennedy, ship sank, George H.W., Bush, and John McCain, shot down, or Bob Dole, ambushed. Ambushed. He got shot at Monte Cassino. Loser, folks. He's a loser. I want I want candidates who won at war, okay? So anyway, back to uh this army that can only buy stuff. Because your career depends on your familiarity with the key infrastructure component. If you want to be a general, if you want to Make it up the ladder. And then, of course, if you want a job with a weapons manufacturer after you retire, which is a huge part of it, and the Latchman actually kind of glosses over. But the point is, if you're a career army guy who is like, I'm an I'm an honorable troop, and I don't I wouldn't want to take a job with a contractor, like some howdy doody nerd 
If you're that or you're a total crook who's just waiting for a chance to go and cash in on K Street, you have the same incentive to big up whatever piece of material you're connected to. If it's nuclear missiles, if it's bombers, if it's uh, if it's aircraft carriers, your job is to fight for it, regardless of whether that's what the fucking military actually needs. And of course, that's exactly what the capitalists who build this shit with huge profit motive, motive margins want. So what this meant, though, is that when it's time to go to war in Iraq, you have Donald Rumsfeld wanting this lean, mean army, by which he means a privatized army, because, of course, there's no leanness or meanness in the weapon systems. Those are still getting more money than ever. But fewer personnel, fewer troops, losers, money, because that's the other thing you could have spent all that money on, actual troops, who maybe, if you want to fight a counterinsurgency war, could really blanket a country and maybe, like, you know, integrate into it and could facilitate uh, the the um, the spread of aid goods again. You can argue that would never happen. Bullshit. That's not that's not what America does, right? But one of the reasons it doesn't do that is because its structures forbid it from being done. Even if they could do the things they want, and remember, the neocons thought that this was a springboard for the invasion of the entire Middle East. There's no denying that. Nobody in Washington who was planning the Iraq War any more than Lenin, any more than Lenin thought. That these uh, worms, the, and it is very funny that these guys are all ex Trotskyists. Everybody around Lenin assumed that the Russian Revolution was the preload to a world revolution. All of the ex fucking Trotskyists in the Office of Special Plans, if you ask them, are we just going to take over Iraq? They would have said, heavens no, it wouldn't be worth it. Just like it wouldn't have been worth it to just overthrow the Tsar. They thought they were sweeping the fucking board clean and creating a, taking America's like stewardship of a globalizing capitalism and turning it into an old fashioned territorial empire. But the army that capitalism had given them to fight with was incapable of the, the, the goal. Couldn't do it. And that's why it founded. Uh, one of the things that Latchman points to is that uh, there, one of the big things that caused huge delays in getting um, humanitarian aid and security to Baghdad and the other cities of Iraq after the U.S. invaded, why there was such a languishing for so long, a, a period during which a lot of people started getting pissed at the U.S., because the insurgency did not start overnight. It really did ramp up over time as the realities of being occupied sunk in. The argument could be made that if those realities had had been, hey, here's a bunch of aid, here's a bunch of food, here's a bunch of stuff, here's a bunch of electricity and clean water, maybe things would have been different. Even though you might not want a foreign invader, maybe you don't feel the need to go out and fight him. But the U.S. was very late to get that stuff to Baghdad. Why? Because it took forever to clear the mines on the way to Baghdad. Technology existed to do fast, quick, efficient minesweeping, but minesweepers, low margin, cheap, not anything anybody could build a career around. So they got crowded out of the budget by big flashy shit that just left them unable to win the hearts and minds in a way that would have been necessary for their colonial fantasy to be realized. They had undermined it themselves by embracing the neoliberal military. But of course they had to because capitalism said, you're fighting, you're going to go fight, but we are keeping our beaks wet because the U.S., because while the U.S. has a huge military, as, a, as I said, as a percentage of GDP, U.S. military spending has collapsed over the past 70 years. And our tax rates have also collapsed over the same time period. 
So these neocons are trying to save an American empire that no longer has the political economy to sustain itself. These guys were thinking, we're going to do what old empires could do. And yeah, the vital early Big Bang American military state where you had an alliance of elites and uh, influential forces all pointed in the same direction. Yeah, but we don't have that anymore. And the fantasy of the neocons is that fighting the war would make it happen, would create that World War II spirit. But time moves forward and they forgot about the fucking dialectic. That's very fitting. Yeah, I feel like I'm, I'm in a Huey. I'm in a helicopter while we talk about the, about the military. And so we want to spend less of our money on the military. We also want fewer of our troops to die. Starting with Vietnam, you have this real phobia about, about troops, American troops dying, and this transformation of, uh, of the notion of, of fighting into not this heroic sacrifice, but into this awful trauma. Uh, there's a funny bit where Latchman points out that the Medal of Honor was used to be given to people who killed the enemy. And increasingly, especially post-war on terror, it's begun for people who sacrificed themselves defending one of their friends, saving lives. Because we have this new, you know, fantasy humanitarian military where the first person being saved is the troop. But that's not how an army is supposed to work. Sacrifice is built into it. Look, people are saying threat of, I just want to, people keep talking about Italy. It's not good. Nothing's good. Everything's bad. But Italy is not a functioning state. You have to take that into consideration before freaking out. And so they get the, so because it takes so long to sweep the mines, the power's out, people are dying in the streets, people are getting shot, panicked people are getting shot at checkpoints, people are getting no food, people have no fuel, it's a disaster, and then they go in and privatize everything. And instead of doing what previous empires and hegemons had done, which is roll up to, a new, with, to the local elites and say, hey, Let's, let's wire you into our global thing here. Let's put you as one level of like, essentially onboard you as employees of the, of the U.S. military empire. No dice. All that had to be privatized. All those things had to be, all those profits, instead of going to as into salaries for these inefficient stake workers, all had to line the pockets of the fucking contractors who had paid to get all these psychos in office in the first place. Someone says, is P2 going to uh, reactivate? Brother, why do you think that, why would you assume that they ever went anywhere? Just because they got found out? Who went to jail again? And so local elites are fucking locked out. And the entire Iraqi army is fucking paid cashiered. Nobody has anything left to gain by collaborating with the foreigners. And having something to gain by collaboration is how you keep local allies. But no, the state structure, these competing elites trying to grab the last fucking bucket of chum out of the uh, sinking ship, mean that even though they're pushing forward this American, this American state that has these people deludedly thinking that they're going to secure its future through uh, empire, are undermining it from within, are eating it like fucking termites because they're knocked into by the crisis of the 70s, 
this extreme survival mechanism, which has expressed itself by looting the military and making it no longer able to fight that kind of war. And so this chapter ends grimly. It says, okay, so the U.S. military cannot fight the wars. So it's supposed to be able, that it would need to fight to win in a post-nuclear world where you're fighting over terrain so that you can secure supply chains and spheres of influence and economic activity, blah, blah, blah. Where the dollar, where the petrodollar can reign. You're trying to keep the petrodollar's radius enforced by like this, the through the sinews of American military power. Well, those that is a pacification campaign. And a pacification campaign is not something that the U.S. military can do. Now, the argument can be made, it cannot be done. Ontologically, no army could do it. But again, for the purposes of talking about America's institutional decay, beside the point, the goal the machine should be seeking cannot be sought by the actual mechanisms that it is made up of. But that is how you get hegemonic decline, because conditions keep changing and the machine cannot adapt to them. Now, the scary thing is, is if you ask, okay, those are the wars we can't fight, what wars can we fight? Nuclear war is the only answer there. Big, big ticket war with a big other power that by definition would have nukes, which means war with them would inevitably devolve into a nuclear exchange. Which is, I think, scarily also the teleology of the two major political parties. I think the Democrats and the Republicans are both fixed, like existentially, to an endpoint of war with China that would become nuclear. Which is, I think, why it's very, that's why I think it's extremely funny how many people on both sides are trying to squint at either the Democrats and Republicans and imagining them as a savior from our condition, right? Like the right wingers think, the based MAGA people, right? They think, Trump is the vanguard of this, of this. He speaks for this lumpen American, like aggrieved capitalist who has been robbed by these globalist forces that uh, are going uh, robbing, robbing the capitalist system of the of the sinews it requires, of the blood it needs to pump its uh, its organs, and so it needs to basically overthrow them and then ally with other res, uh, rebellious lumps of uh, middle class grievance from Russia to Hungary, to, hey, Italy, come on board. Maybe France, if they get a Le Pen. This is the Bannon fantasy. And what is the end point of it? All these cool, based countries come together to go to war with China. He talks about it all the time. You, you can look at uh, uh, Trump's administration. There's no argument to be made. You cannot make any kind of uh, meaningful harm mitigation argument about the Republicans. Oh, actually, Trump is uh, uh, compared to the neocons. Trump is a dove. Sure, compared on the question of Russia, but Russia is a sideshow. It's always going to be China. And there are so many, and not just, obviously liberals, but there are so many putative leftists. And you know what? They're leftists. It doesn't matter. It's just, a, it's just opinions. I'm not going to say somebody is lying about their opinions. And they really don't like Biden, and they really don't like the Democrats, and they understand how bad they are. But they also think that they are our bulwark against something much worse. They think, oh, you know, like if the like think about how when the Roman Empire fell and you know it fell overnight in England and a bunch of people died and oh my God, what if that happened uh, here? That'd be so bad. 
and the and with the idea being it's worth it keeping the empire going to do that and that vision extending from you know the coping leftists to the heights of the, of the world economic forum is this idea of globalized capital using existing structures like nato and the un building a coalition of uh yeah capitalist liberal democracies to go to war with Russia and China. But of course, you could say, aha, that's worse because that's two countries. Once it's nukes are involved, it means nothing. The parties are locked into this trajectory because neither one of them can address material conditions for all the reasons we've talked about in this book. So that means things are going to get worse if we assume that and uh, uh, hostility to institutions becomes worse, it either erupts into some sort of civil conflict or somebody in charge on one side or the other decides, let's put off the civil conflict by having a good old-fashioned war. And it could start off as an attempt to just, you know, tickle the ivories and get some nationalist spirit going. It'll eventually go in, even though you could say, that's madness. Their economies are essentially interconnected. It's it's like a uh, going to war with yourself. The European uh, imperial economies of the world 1914 were absolutely interconnected in a similar fashion. So that's grim. Uh, but again, you still have to live, so who cares? Uh, again, it's it's mostly just useful to remind yourself of how little you can control. And it does remind me more than ever, really want to do a China book next. Somebody gave me a recommendation in my DMs. I forgot what it is, but I'll look it up. It's like the China, like the rise of China or something. It can't be that. That's too, uh, that's too generic. I don't know. But I'm going to find one sort of Chinese, Chinese book to talk about exactly where China fits in here because they are... If, if capitalism is this like uh, like space slug that moves from host to host, you know, starts out kind of bubbling into existence in the, the northern Italian city-states before being smashed out by the Italian wars moving up into the Rhine Valley and then sort of settling in the estuaries of, uh, of the low countries and, and uh, southern England. Uh, how China shook the world, shot the world, I think, is a good one. I've heard. I've heard is a good one. Um, they get in there. It's by moving from polity to polity because it has to be in a nation state. And uh, so you go, or it has to be, it's like some sort of, uh, uh, you know, some sort of medium-sized uh, state structure that is in competition with other ones. That's why these things are encouraged instead of destroyed because a unified uh, ruling class stomps out those sort of destabilizing elements and did so in the rest of the world where empire ruled. But in Europe, it didn't happen. So it, it moves from host to host. And it gets to the U.S. Because it, it because Europe was destroyed and destabilized critically by it. It only stands to reason that China should come up next. But nukes, there were never nukes before. There was, And nobody else goes out quietly. They all go out down fighting. But going down fighting meant one thing in the pre-nuclear age. All of which to say is the future is uncertain. 
Uh, all we got to do is uh, live through it. And the thing is, we will even if we don't. I know that sounds stupid and like Yoda said it, but like I said, I got to get out of here pretty quickly. Sorry. I've been distracted. I got married. It's my birthday month. You can't be mad at me for sounding like a wishy-washy dipshit. I'm all romantic. Okay, that's pretty much all I wanted to say on this. No, so next week, next week we're going to be out of town because we're going to Chicago. Sold out show, baby. Very happy about that. Tickets still available, though, for L.A., New York, and Fort Lauderdale, so please buy them. Uh, the next week, chat, the, the, I believe the last chapter before the conclusion, the, uh, the American economy, financial cannibalization. That, that sounds about right. Yeah, that's the last chapter about, you know, hegemony. And then there's the last one after that. There's two chapters left. And then is there a conclusion? Or just two chapters? Yeah, there's just two chapters left. So, yeah, sometime after we get back from since Chicago, we'll do that. All right, folks. Yes, it is the conclusion of the American economy. That's why, that's why you got to find someone to love, folks. That's the only thing that can help you through. Whatever is going to come, and whatever you're going through now, I know that sucks because it's a rare and uh, and fragile thing. But I guess you just got to keep hope. Hope is the the residue of the of the love that you haven't yet found. All right, bye, folks. Peace.